You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to a BMJ podcast special report. Published online this week is the first Spotlight, a new series that highlights topics and areas of health that are of vital importance for the promotion of better healthcare. This first one centres on palliative care and death. In 1967, Cicely Saunders established the world's first purpose-built hospice in South London. St Christopher's Hospice was founded on the principles of expert pain and symptom relief with holistic care to meet the physical, social, psychological and spiritual needs of its patients and those of their family and friends, principles that are at the heart of palliative care as we know it today. Although much has been learnt about caring for cancer patients at the end of their lives, These lessons have been inadequately appreciated by doctors treating patients dying from causes other than cancer, and those make up many more people who die every year. In a series of articles, this spotlight focuses on recognising and managing the end of life, having the difficult conversations with patients about their death, and the importance of taking into account spiritual aspects of dying. In this podcast, I'll be talking to two spotlight authors. First, Professor Jane Ma, an oncologist and chief medical officer of Macmillan Cancer Support. And secondly, Dr Mike Nacton, GP and chief medical officer for the British Heart Foundation. So, to kick this all off, I'm joined in this studio by Jane Ma. Jane, the medical world is known for a long time about the importance of palliative and end-of-life care, but that doesn't seem to have translated into a wider public understanding of the issue, Is it time to take palliative care out of the hospice? I think that's a a very important issue, and and I think it's worth reflecting on why um, uh, this has has come about. And I think it's because uh, chronic illness and cancer have both changed a lot over the last uh, 50 years, and even more so over the last 20 years, where before it used to be possible to predict when someone was going to die. Whereas now with modern treatment, particularly with um, anti-cancer treatment, someone with incurable disease may have a much more unpredictable prognosis. And we know that doctors are very bad at predicting prognosis. So what that means is there's really a big culture change moving from discussing dying at a very specific time to recognising that we're not going to be able to predict prognosis accurately and we need to start creating opportunities to talk about and plan for dying much earlier and in much different in different ways. Mm. As a society, um, you know, the health of the, the nation's got much mm. better, so we're less confronted with death. Do you think that's had an effect on... on well, I think, you know, I do think that... Uh, you can get to to middle age before a significant other dies within your family. So we're a death-free generation. Many uh, families will not have experience of dying or uh, have developed the the rituals or the ways of dealing with dying that they would have done 50 or 100 years ago. And I think that does make it much more difficult to talk about dying. Now, before you mentioned uh, cancer care, um, and obviously that's one area where palliative care um, has been kind of focused in the past. Do you think we are still too focused on on specialties like that? Well, I think um, uh, cancer has changed a lot. 
And now um, the illness trajectory for many cancers is very similar to chronic illness. And that's made us really rethink the whole concept mm. of, uh, of pand- palliative care and end-of-life care and recognise that um, many of the skills that are required uh, to support cancer patients could equally well be applied um, to support those with chronic illness. Now, one of the things that one of the authors of a, mm-hmm. a different article to yours mm-hmm. uh, mentioned was that we teach um, everyone about resuscitation, yet mm-hmm. people don't use that very often. But everyone will be involved in end-of-life care in some way in their career. Resuscitation's easy. There's, there's mm-hmm. kind of a, a nice algorithm to it, mm-hmm. and you can, you, know, you can follow it easily. But is there anything like that when it comes to palliative care? For, for I, think, I, mean, I think the first thing is recognising when it is important to think about end-of-life care and planning for end-of-life care. And I think, uh, given the fact that we can't, pred- we can't make these accurate predictions, and given the fact that people will continue to have active treatment until quite close to death, the concept of would you be surprised if this person died within a few months, or do you think this person is sick enough to die, and using that as your signal to actually we need to think about this person and recognise that a general practitioner is unlikely to initiate a conversation with a patient unless they have a signal from specialist care that this is appropriate because general practitioners have recognised that more and more active treatments are possible and are uh, worried about introducing a concept of dying if there's something more that could be done at a hospital. And so we've got to move away from the, from the, the thought that we have to have certainty before introducing conversations. And I think that's perhaps one of the most important things. Now, that doesn't mean you have to stuff the information down their throat, but that we should be creating opportunities for people to talk about and plan um, for dying. Sure. I mean, you mentioned their active treatment and how it can go right up till, till very close to the end of Absolutely. life. Do you think uh, physicians have a tendency to use that as a way of avoiding having that kind of conversation. I think there's no doubt that it's much easier to give another treatment than to enter into a discussion with someone that perhaps another treatment may not be the right thing to do. There's a collusion between the doctor and the patient because there's a feeling um, from the patient's point of view that if you're not giving anti-cancer treatment, you're giving up. And I think there was an extremely helpful article quite recently in the New England Journal of Medicine which showed a survival advantage for patients with lung cancer who had effective um, specialist palliative care. And that opens the door to really having proper discussions with people that it's not just your disease, it's a combination between you and your disease which will uh, determine your survival. Mm. And that then makes it easier for the doctor and the patient to actually have a conversation. Because I think at the moment, as an oncologist, I'd find... Um, introducing these conversations sometimes feels to the patient as if I'm giving up on them. I would see my role sometimes as actually opening the door for a conversation which would be had with someone else, uh, with a nurse, perhaps with a general practitioner who's got an ongoing relationship with them. Um, So I think it's um, important that we think in terms of uh, not necessarily 
uh, having the whole conversation, but starting the conversation. And I think that's what um, we as physicians need to be much better at. Starting that conversation is a, a very difficult thing. People aren't comfortable with mm. death. Is there any way that we can make that easier? Or is it just something that we will have to do and get used to doing? I think there's, there's quite a lot of that, getting used to doing it. I think um, it's something that probably um, communication skills teaching is helpful in setting up scenarios in term, and there's quite a lot of evidence that that is the case. I think a lot of people don't recognise, certainly, that in the UK, if you wouldn't be surprised if someone died within six months, a patient is entitled to non currently to non-means-tested benefits. And that if you don't have that conversation with them, you may well be depriving them of that non. And I, and I found that that's quite an important thing when talking to junior doctors within hospitals, you know, making them recognise that. So it's about bringing out the, the benefits of having those Absolutely. conversations. Absolutely. Yes, of seeing it as a positive thing rather than as a negative thing. Well, Jane, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. For the second part of this special podcast, I've come to the British Heart Foundation in central London to talk to Mike Napton, a GP and their chief medical officer. Now, Mike, when people think of the British Heart Foundation, they think of treatment and especially prevention. We've all seen your prevention campaigns. But palliation and end-of-life care doesn't really come to mind. You've sponsored the spotlight, so it's obviously important to you. Is it something you've always done, or is it a new initiative? I think it's an emerging initiative, actually. So it wouldn't be something that people would have associated with the British Heart Foundation perhaps 10 years ago. Uh, but over the last maybe five to ten years, there's been a growing awareness that A, d- diseases of the heart and circulation are the commonest cause of death. Second is that uh, there's a lot to learn from cancer and palliation. However, the natural history of the uh, long-term conditions, non-malignant long-term conditions, is very different to cancer. Mm-hmm. So we need to approach this in a different way. So the BHF has tried to, A, understand what the issues are and improve the outcomes for people dying from non-malignant disease. There's quite a bit of research actually which shows that the outcomes in terms of place of death, pain control, symptom control, carers' um, feelings as to how their loved ones were cared for is worse in the context of non-malignant disease. Mm than malignant disease, which reflects the um, work that's been done around cancer and hospice work and all that. Sure. Well, you mentioned that cancer, and you've been working with Marie Curie, who obviously are well known for for that. Did you decide to do that specifically because they had those expertise? Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of things. One was, for some years, we've been investing in heart failure nurses, specialist nurses, uh, and this was really to maximise, optimise the treatment of patients with heart failure to get good symptom control. And feedback from those nurses was that they saw a lot of people with symptoms which needed palliating or symptoms that needed support, which they didn't feel skilled in providing. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Marie Curie Cancer Care, despite calling themselves cancer care, uh, made a strategic decision to not only concern themselves with cancer but wanted to l- learn about how you manage palliation of symptoms in people without cancer. 
So those two things came together and it's in a natural partnership of two fairly large UK-wide charities to learn from each other. So in fact, our first project together was called Better Together and it was uh, the Palliative Care Specialist Nurses and the BHF Heart Foundation, um, Heart Failure Nurses, uh, working together and learning from each other the skills that they needed to provide care for an individual patient with heart failure. Charles, what was that initiative and what were you, were you actually doing? In so uh, we had two initiatives. One was um, partnering with Marie Curie Cancer Care in Lincolnshire about delivering choice, which was about increasing the chances of someone um, dying in their preferred place, mm-hmm. which is often home rather than hospital. Yes. And the second was in Bradford and Poole, which was the Better Together project which was largely an educational initiative, which is to take the skills of those two sets of specialist nurses and bring them together for the benefit of the patient. And that was favourably uh, evaluated. And so we've gone on to the next stage, which is uh, working again with Marie Curie Cancer Care in Glasgow, based around a number of hospices. Um, the reason we felt that the hospice was important was that one of the rate limiting steps for Better Together, the first project, was that from time to time you needed a access to a short inpatient stay in order to stabilise yeah. the patient who'd gone off, as it were, but only for 24 hours, which then would allow you to continue to care for them in the community, which is where they'd prefer to be. Do you think this is something that's been picked up more widely amongst you know, people who are looking at diabetes, um, things like that as well. Yeah, I think there is a shift actually. Um, I would say that uh, the palliative care community is recognising two or three things. One is they need to attend to not just cancer, but um, long-term conditions, chronic disease. Um, the second is, I think there's a recognition that they need to disseminate the palliative ter- scare, care skills uh, out of the hospice, out of the specialist palliative care community into the more generalist community so that everybody's uh, skilled up. And the last is this this uh, rather um, alarming statistic, there's going to be quite a, a significant rise in the number of deaths per annum as the baby boomer population mm-hmm. start to approach the end of their lives. And so the numbers of deaths per year are going to be that much greater and therefore we have got to think about how we manage people at the end of their lives better. And dare I say it, I think there's also an issue, uh, a financial issue as well, in that um, I don't think uh, striving officiously at the end of someone's life is always appropriate and it's certainly costly to the NHS. And I think there's a debate to be had about what the benefit is for the patient uh, relative to the uh, investment through acute services uh, that the NHS is currently making. The agenda's gaining momentum and the realisation of the importance of talking about death is expanding in society today. To find out more about the subject, just go online to bmj.com and follow the links to the Spotlight section. This will also be appearing as a special supplement in the print edition of the BMJ, out on the 25th of September. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.